to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 101 of the podcast. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and today we're going to be exploring the topic of emotional demands. Working in schools is emotionally demanding and rewarding. Working with so many humans can be exciting and exhausting. In today's episode, I have the joy of chatting with educational and developmental psychologist, Dr. Amy Maxwell. Amy is at the intersection of academia and real-world impact. With degrees in educational and developmental psychology and behavioral neuroscience, she brings a well-rounded and insightful psychological perspective to workplace well-being in education. Specialising in the interplay between emotional demands and psychosocial health in educational settings. Her work on the Principal Health and Wellbeing Project has informed policy and practice in Australia and internationally. Through her firm, Thriving Principles, Amy extends a diverse range of support to educational leaders, from one-on-one professional supervision to enriching workshops for leadership teams all the way to high-level strategic guidance for entire systems and departments. In this conversation, we discuss What are emotional demands? How emotional demands impact us physically? The importance of rest and recovery and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Amy Maxwell. Amy, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you so much, Meg. It's a delight to be here with you. Today, we're going to be talking about emotional demands. What do you hope listeners will gain from hearing this conversation? I think I would like for people to have an understanding of what an emotional demand is. And everything in life is emotionally demanding to some degree, right? So how you might discern, you know, your own safety levels and then how you might move yourself through those things with perhaps a bit more ease than just our reactive, reflexive state. That resonates so deeply with me that as humans we are fueled with emotional demands and it feels like as we get older we notice more and we experience more. So as we're talking about emotional demands, what are they? So emotional demands are anything externally that pretty much says to you, you need to provide this kind of emotionality or in the first place. It is emotionally demanding to have a toddler screaming at the end of a checkout aisle. The demand is that we keep ourselves in check and that we cope with this little person who's very entitled, yeah, and putting on whatever display and that we give back to the audience, in this case the shoppers, the emotions that society expects from that situation, yeah. So, for instance, if we saw a mother um, hitting a kid, quite a few of us would step in at that point in time. Uh, As it is, what we watch is mothers trying and the rest of us give them knowing looks 
and laughs and, and help if you can. So that demand from the external to be a certain way emotionally. And so when we're talking about emotional demands, how does that differ from emotional labour? When I did my PhD, I looked at emotional labour and emotional demands, and they are very different things, but they're very related concepts because demands is what the environment says you need to be, and labour is how you do it internally. So Ellie Hochschild in sociology in like the late 70s, I think it was, coined this term emotional labour specifically um, around flight attendants and how they had to be performatively pleasant and nice no matter what goes on. And, you know, back then you can imagine it was pretty sexist times, so women really had a very high emotional demand for tolerance of behaviours that they might not otherwise. And then how do we do that? We fake, we hide, and then her third uh, idea was this feeling of deep acting, which is when what we do feel is aligned with the situation somewhat, but we've still got to like bring it up. So hiding emotions, suppressing emotions, really trying to do the expected thing, emotional labour tactics we use internally to answer the demands externally. So the demands are the external demands and the labour is literally the effort, the labour it takes to meet demands. And it's interesting that you bring up the idea of a flight attendant and how to be pleasant and make sure everyone has a lovely time because for so many teachers listening, that's how they feel going through their day, feeling like they're on show, everything's okay, nothing to worry about, and they have to keep carrying on. But that's like just like every person as soon as you have a kid, right? Or as soon as you've got anybody a little bit dependent on you, yeah? Even when we're adults and we've got to look after our parents. You do. You're the person who every day has to hold it together <laughs> and keep all these other people who are in various states of not as arrayed as you intact and hopefully heading towards the same sort of destination. And so if teachers are aware that they have lots of emotional demands, but that's the job. That's, you know, half the reason I'd say, if not more, that teachers get into it is because with emotional demands comes emotional rewards. Yes, the emotional rewards. So as we're thinking about the demands, what is the impact of increasing demands on the way that we function? So it's very dependent on the individual to a degree, yeah? The job itself. So teachers didn't choose to go into a factory line where they had low contact with other humans, had to do a repetitive job, wanted to have like tight structures around what they do and don't do and tight goals to aim to that you really can't avoid getting to unless you get fired. Like they wanted a more free workplace and you want to have a relationship with children and people really like that. And also to that, that sense of bringing up the new generation. So the people that choose jobs like teaching are people who want to be doing emotional things in their workplace. Not all, obviously. And that's fine because school has a place for everybody, right? But the emotional demands of teaching are implicit and implied and explicit as soon as you go in. For a lot of people, it seems attractive. And I think it is in the relationships with the children and the relationships with the parents. Even when they go hard, they can still be really rewarding. It's that everything external now is also providing maybe more push so that they're not as stable as they used to be. They're not as intact, not just the kids, but everyone, yeah? It is so true that as we're looking around our ecosystems, all the humans involved, that it does feel like people aren't as settled, aren't as grounded. And so the impact that has is quite interesting to look at. 
And we see it everywhere, yeah? So you go into, I went to my dentist the other day in a quiet little suburb and there's a sign. It's this one little room. There's just like eight chairs to wait in. It's all quiet and peaceful and it's just a lovely little waiting room and there's two lovely ladies sitting at the reception desk with a big sign in between of them that says, when you come in here, speak to us politely. Respect is, is of the essence. The emergency room's got it. Centrelink's got it. The bank's got it. Everywhere these days. Not school has got this very clear displayed code of conduct because we're seeing increasing distress from the populace when they attend institutions that have some kind of authority or power with them. So people are dysregulating more easily, whether it is purposeful to get needs met or whether it is reflexive because of distress, who could tell? And so as the demand is increasing for teachers, I'm assuming it would be safe to say that the emotional labour is increasing for teachers. So emotional labour is this work of meeting demands, right? For heaps of people, it's quite reflexive. Doing the work can be quite reflexive. Everybody is not always hiding and faking and deep acting. Mostly people are actually aligned with who they are and what they feel. Yeah, there's not very many of us that really want to use corporal punishment on a child because it's misbehaved anymore. Yeah, we're not fighting against that urge. We're not suppressing it. We're not hiding the urge to try and hurt a kid. We just don't want to do it. Yeah, so a lot of the times the emotional demands that are placed on us are aligned with our values. It's just there's a hell of a lot. And so if there's a lot of demand, how can that not increase our labour to meet the demand? So it increases our work, like we have more to do frequency, right? But does that mean that we use different tactics to match that frequency? Do all of the tactics rise? No, hiding emotions, faking emotions and deep acting are the three components specifically of emotional labour and they don't necessarily increase. Although if I think back at my research, I think hiding emotions shows something. Faking doesn't. Faking is actually quite hard and you've got to have authentic workspaces to be able to fake successfully and it's not authentic. Places where people might fake, for instance, is palliative care. Uh, When a patient dies, a nurse might fake that she's not as grief-stricken as she is because the family is grief-stricken and this is their person and this is their time and so she will hold it together yeah and fake that composure but then go back into the unit speak to the other nurses and be authentic so teachers do do that as well but no as demands rise it's not necessarily a direct relationship that forms of labour rise because mostly what people are doing is just themselves giving of themselves the way they are So when do we get into trouble here? Where's the issue? The frequency is too much and the intensities are too high and the accountabilities are too single person and the face of who did this is too pointed and society now, instead of just being smaller sorts of places where we couldn't really talk that much or rabble rouse, rabble rousers can get together and form a collective, even if there's only 1% of them. So we're in a place where the intensity is spiking and the frequency is spiking. And just being our lovely selves doing the things that we usually do, stepping into the force, solving this problem, holding that space. You've also got to have time to replenish and recover, right? Where is that time? Like I I hear from lots of educators, obviously I speak to a lot of leaders, right, but that this sense of there is not enough time for me to work my job, give it all I want to give it, and let me, yeah, as I refer to her, the Amy. <laughs> when does the Amy get wakeful time in the body doing some stuff that she likes, yeah? And so I think for when people are under a lot of work overload and there's high emotional demands, you're spending a lot of time recovering from those things, 
not necessarily replenishing and restoring your who, yourself. And that's when emotional demand starts to become problematic. And often it's because people have got habits of over-answering, yeah, stepping into solve, stepping into fix, not handing back the work of something, but, oh, I'll just do that. Oh, it will only be quick and not really managing their own time so well. And if you've got those sorts of really, very kind habits early on, as emotional demands grow, you will just keep on giving more and more of yourself and end up completely strung out. Yes, that really resonates that as the emotional demands increase, we literally can't keep doing what we've always done because we do not have the capacity to keep caring in that way. Yeah, and teachers aren't like I am. I'm a psychologist, right? We're supposed to have X number of hours of professional supervision every year, which is totally recommended for educators as well, but hard to find. You have to have continuing professional development. We get training in how to hold difficult spaces with people who are in dangerous states. Now, educators maybe sometimes get some of that for primary school kids. (laughs) Yeah, little people who are in very dysregulated, dangerous states, but unless you go off necessarily looking for it, where do you get a, a training in how to cope with ongoing emotional demands about complex situations that involve people's most precious parts of life, their children? You don't. Teachers don't get that. And so, no, going about it the way it used to be gone about, it's not sustainable to do it as reflexively. One has to be more careful. Yes. So moving away from a default approach towards a more intelligent design approach in the way that we manage these emotional demands that are constantly increasing. How do we do that, Amy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the management is not about the externals, right? Because that's all out of your control. Yeah, the management is the internals. What do I give myself permission for and in what way do I permit it? So education traditionally has relied on the goodwill of women to serve it unpaid because we love the children and we want everyone to flourish and grow, of course. Excuse my tone, but I find it patriarchally same. Oh, I give of myself, I give of myself, I give of myself. Oh, I just do this, I just do that. That's that same idea. Women are supposed to be pleasing and pleasant and compliant and helpful and smooth the way from everybody else. We've got that going on in a big sort of societal way. It enrages me. <laughs> the EVA and the time in new has meant that what was essentially transformational and volunteer and of the heart, of course I'll go to sports day. You know, my, my kids want to see me there. I want to cheer for Bobby who's worked so hard to do blah, 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 right? Now it's like, well, I'll only go to sports day if I get time in new. And that's fair. Yeah, it's just that it's not your school's fault. It's not your principal's fault. None of this has been set up by us who live in it. We're living through the after effects. So when you become careful, when you become measured, when you become gated, I think, one has to be careful not to gate one's heart and not to gate one's volunteer self and not to gate one's love just to try and make sure it's all fair because then you you lock off bits of yourself. But instead, choose carefully what you do and you do not do and understand this is a job with high emotional demands. We are in a time where society is struggling. This is a highly emotional demanding job, yeah? Now, we know people like paramedics, me, psychiatrists, whatever, they all went into a highly emotional demanding jobs on purpose. Teachers went in and they were expecting it to be very, very rewarding and it still is. It's just you also have to have ILPs for 11 of the 25 children in your class. So even if you want to do your best by all of them, can you even? Is that possible? It's a lot of independent learning for one person to deliver on a hoop of people. This carefulness with oneself rather than the reflexive, this willingness to assert, but kindly and lovingly and compassionately assert. 
a willingness to step in and help out so that we have this community feel together, which is totally what I do see in schools anyway. That's never gone away. I don't think it can, and that's human. Amy, you're highlighting so many beautiful things for us to think about and really the importance of moving towards the ability to learn when to lean in, when to lean out, and when to lie down. Naturally, we have just been taught to just lean in, just to do the things. And launch. Launch. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we're going to lean in, we're going to lean out, we're going to lie down and launch. Yeah, nice. So launching is when you decide, oh, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I think I will go off and do something maybe education related, maybe child related. Who knows what it will be, but it will not be in a classroom anymore. And that's legit. You're allowed to launch whatever. You do you, baby. It's your life. The pandemic has made a lot of people go, hey, what am I doing with my wakeful hours and my time on this planet? It appears to be uh, limited. Who knew? All of us. Yes. What do I really want? And considering the emotional demands of this job, how can I create space for myself? You know, a part of that launch could be, how can I relaunch myself within this context? Because I feel like I have lost my sense of self in all the leaning in, in all the doing, in all the wanting to be there for others. I have lost my sense of self. So how can I lean back long enough to reconnect with who I am and how I manage this reality, knowing that there are so many emotional rewards available to us when we have the ability to be with that joy and not constantly on to the next thing. Yeah, and also to accept what is instead of always expecting it to be different than it is turning out yeah the what if only's in the past and the what ifs of the future they are dangerous things for us to be listening to delusionally in our heads but we often do that's human that's why we've survived so long it's because we listen to that chatter but the chatter is not always like super helpful right uh, it's like phoenix i was just thinking when you were talking we got what have we got lie lean in lean out lie down launch but also phoenix right lean right in get burnt up but not burnt up in the way that you, your ashes and your nothing But lean into your heart, lean into your purpose, lean into your willingness to give and... And that is a skill to be able to give without losing self. It's such a delicate balance of that self-awareness, the self-knowledge and taking that courageous action and almost being an advocate for ourselves and our lives. Definitely being an advocate for ourselves in our lives, not almost, like most certainly. And it does not have to be an advocate that's adversarial. It's an advocate that moves with compassionate love. So I don't need to be cross about taking some time for myself or defensive about it. Obviously, it's what I would do. I don't need to be defensive. Oh, I can't just take my, this thing from you right now and do it. I can't see you right now, uh, but I'm sorry about it. Or We don't need to be like that. Oh, great. You want to speak to me? I'm off to somewhere else. Speak to so-and-so, I'll write in my notebook and it doesn't matter, catch people's hot potatoes, put them down, organise them yourself, they're not your hot potatoes. That really rings true, this idea of the hot potatoes, because people are constantly spot fires, there's so many things happening and then we get into this reactive cycle, then we get to the end of the day and then we flop into our chair and say, I've got nothing done, I can't believe what's happened today. But to move beyond that and think about, yes, there's X, Y, Z happening, but in this moment, 
which am I going to give my attention to? What do I choose to give my attention to? And have I got into a habit of becoming so reactive that I don't even know if what I'm doing is helpful or not? And mostly people can't tell that it's really helpful. So when you're quite chronically stressed, there's this thing called allostasis, which means that you, you sort of your set balance shifts up and you can't tell anymore. It's like that analogy of like, what is it, the frogs that boil slowly in the water and they can't tell. That's what, that's literally what our bodies do. Our bodies keep on going, oh yeah, I can do this. This is normal. And we know that, right? We find times post-stress where we get to step back and we go, wow, I was actually really wound up. I thought I was like quite together. Uh, but now that I'm not in it anymore, I can tell that I was a little bit of an case. <laughs> Oh, yes. I have felt that myself so many times. Like, yeah, I did so well there. Like, no one would have known. And then you lady like, oh, my goodness. It was all over my face. Allostasis, you can't tell. So we've got to make sure that the activities that we choose when we need to recover. So emotional exhaustion is what really comes from emotional demands. Yeah, this intensity in them. And that's pretty clear. You know, it doesn't really matter what kind of strategies or work you use to do the demands. As the demands increase over time, people's burnout increases over time. Yeah, their job satisfaction tends to decrease. Their mental health-related quality of life tends to decrease. Just because there's not enough time for you. And so we have to make sure that we choose recovery activities that are aligned with what we want to get out of them. Mostly we don't. And now that we're in this internet media screen age, we especially don't. And there are some specific recovery activities that do promote flourishing in this sort of state right so if we do even evening plopping in front of the couch like we so often do crack open a wine or a beer flop on the couch what's on netflix what are we binging eat some dinners desultory conversation with the people around you maybe some bit of frantic working and then into bed dreading tomorrow instead you look at does that shift next day's emotional exhaustion only you can tell does that shift tonight's emotional exhaustion? Do I feel less emotionally exhausted after participating in this activity? Physically fatigued? Do I feel more or less physically fatigued when I participate in this after work activity? And then the next morning, what are my emotional exhaustion like levels like compared to the day before? What are my physical fatigue like levels like compared to the day before? And what's my verve, my, my zest like compared to the day before? And what we can see from the studies that look into recovery activities and what effects they do have, when people participate in social and outdoor activities after work, next day emotional exhaustion and next day zest are improved in the ways we would expect to see. Often people will feel more physically fatigued after doing a social and or outdoor activity, but it does not translate to more fatigue the next day physically. It translates to less fatigue. You know, your chattery brain is all like, oh, I've got no energy. I can't do anything. I just have to sit here. And chattery brain, oh, I love it. But it's also really primal. It's your creature self. And when it senses that the system is low on resources, it has this do nothing command to conservation of resources. And it chatters to us to tell us how legit that is. Yes, I'm sure listeners are laughing because they know that demand of low resources, do little as possible, and then the brain will kick in, I deserve it. I have worked so hard. I deserve that extra glass of wine. I deserve to add to cart, to watch another episode, to do all the things. And I love how you're highlighting the importance of recovery and being quite deliberate in the way that we recover and noticing how it makes us feel the next day. Because adding to cart, having an extra glass of wine, maybe in the moment you think it's helpful, but the next day, is it actually helping me deal with this emotional exhaustion? 
Yeah, and physical exhaustion because emotional demands end up making people feel physically fatigued, yeah. Our brains use about 30% of the energy stores that are going with us throughout the day. If we're not feeding ourselves regularly throughout the day, which teachers often don't, then by the end of the day, your brain has used a hell of a lot of energy just doing and being, yeah. That low resources state is compounded by low physical resources and then fatigue. Yes, that really makes sense because I'm thinking about times when I've worked in schools when there's been very little behaviour management, so very little obvious dysregulation in the classroom. And yes, you get through the day. Yes, you may feel a little bit tired. However, compare that to a day where there's a lot of dysregulation in the classroom, a lot of big behaviours, a lot of big feelings. The time I finish the day physically and emotionally spent very different environments very different environments and so depending on your school your environment might be like that regularly yeah so I've got a a few schools under my belt that have multiple weekly pockets and other interactions with the department of services of family services yeah all week that happening gang violence from outside and I do mean gangs literally coming into the school, attacks inside school, those things are all incredibly emotionally demanding for people to do. So, yeah, if your school is in a place where you're really seeing how hard it is for people to stay intact outside of the school environment, that's often coming into the environment, making life harder. Uh, Over in the leafy green, it's still the same. I mean, it's not the same in, in terms of the intensity of the criminality or the acts of violence, but emotional demands of dysregulation and distressed kids are distressed kids they all look pretty similar that's why it's been such a problem so we're getting dysregulated kids all over the place and adults yes gosh i've had plenty of moments where i'm dysregulated trying to work with students trying to work with parents trying to work out who's who and what's going on and so this piece around recovery sounds like in order to enjoy the emotional rewards in order to be with reality as it is recovery is vital and micro breaks really really purposeful micro breaks so you just described a situation which teachers have really come basically pulled between pillar and post and everybody wants you to have done it five minutes ago or to be in this particular location in the school simultaneously five minutes ago yeah whether it's back-to-back meetings or a class ending and then a duty that starts straight away you know it's not possible to finish class and instantly be on duty So there's these periods of time where people are like, oh, oh, I've got to rush to the next thing. And the more we obey that urgency command from our brain, the more adrenaline our brains will give us because our brains think that we are in super danger when we go far. So we end up in these quite reactive, fast cycles and micro breaks throughout the day where one stops and acknowledges what are my feelings, where am I right now? Yeah, not having a, a therapy session with myself, but literally just tune in. What am I feeling? What are the emotional things going on here for me? Where is my physicality? Does my creature need anything? Yeah, if I was riding a horse all day, would I not stop to give it any food, water, or let it go to the toilet? What? If you do need to do any of those things, do them. Go get a quick drink. Go have a snack. Go to the toilet. It doesn't matter that you're late for something. It doesn't matter that you're pulled polluted post. The you that turns up that has grounded a little bit is a you that will do a better job. The urgent self doesn't know that. Urgent self just wants everybody there right away doing it all fast. And it doesn't do as good a job because what we do have is an emotional demand inside schools to produce a co-regulating environment for kids. And anxious, hyped up teachers or really low, flat, 
train teachers, that is not a co-regulating environment for children. And that's not an unreasonable demand. That's that's how it is. So yeah, through the day, you make sure to check in with yourself, know your feelings, know your triggers, where am I at? What do I need? Box breathing, back I go, choose your path. End of the day, choose your recovery activities very wisely. Do an experiment on yourself. For emotional exhaustion, psychological detachment is the most useful thing that you could be doing. Yeah, so psychological detachment is this ability to switch off. It's not about not caring. It's not about being cynical. It's not about not having feelings or not endorsing other people's feelings. It's literally just about saying, I'm not there anymore. Not my monkeys, not my circus. And then we have effects at home as well, right? What I see from leadership, but I'm not sure if it's the same with teachers, but work interferes with family like 90% of the time. Family interference with work, really low. It's very hard for family to interfere with work when you're never around them, but it's very easy for work to interfere with family when you're always at work. There is just so much for us to really think about, to get off that dance floor of school life and to get up on the balcony and just take that pause and just notice what's going on here. How is this helping me? How is it not helping me? Where are times where I'm desperately trying to prove myself instead of choose myself? There's so many invitations here for us to consider as we move forward in a world that is filled with emotional demands. Sounds like they're never going away. And they never have. It's just we've spent this weird little, what, post-Renaissance bubble going, emotions, they don't matter and we can leave them at the door. Everything should be rational and logical and we should be able to solve it all with conversation and cognition. You can't solve physicality with talking. You can't solve emotions with acts of doing things. It's they're not a doing thing. They're an understanding how I feel thing and an answering it. And we are currently, it seems, in this privileged corner of the world, trying to understand what even are these things that we feel that we separated ourselves from for so long. You know, we could have a whole conversation about colonization and colonization of the self and separation from man and nature there. It goes back for a very long way. Um, but we are we need to be integrated selves. To be integrated selves sounds like a journey. And if you could give listeners some skills Off the top of your head, what would be three skills that we can all practice and work on? So active listening, empathy mapping, that one would be the first one, especially when somebody is accusing you of something. Practicing actually being attentive to what what is actually going on and where you might have had something to do with it rather than just defensive and projecting. Understanding emotional contagion effects, both how that operates inside yourself and how it means you will operate around other people. I think those are very underrated skills because we bounce off each other in a mirror without really recognising that we're doing it or, or we project our feelings onto others or when they tell us something, you didn't do this X, Y, Z, and I'm really angry. We're all like, oh, no, I must have. No, they're just really angry. And we don't need to take part necessarily in other people's emotional states and there's too much taking part of it. And what's another skill that I would really recommend? Oh, you know what? It would be the art of self-experimentation. Yeah, the, like the, just the willingness to say, well, I have no idea whether this is going to be an ongoing thing that I do forever, which is stupid to think of anyway and only puts you off doing something, but instead think, I'll give it a go and I'll collect some data. Let's, you know, use the bits of the Renaissance that were useful, the scientific method. My hypothesis is if I hang out with Susie going for a walk around the park, 
uh, twice a week in the afternoons and we just fast walk and do our best to fast walk yourselves, I will feel less emotionally exhausted and less tired the morning after than I do on the days when I don't. There's an experiment, right? Easy, easy to do. Organize it with Susie, go for the walk, write down your units of distress, or in this case, units of exhaustion, zero to 10. Zero, I'm fine, no exhaustion. 10, oh my God, really? This is being alive? And then the next morning, rate those same things. Yeah, and then look at yourself, see. So this self-experimentation, the willingness to step in there, and teachers have got such good skills at setting up these sorts of, can you do this? Yes. Oh, Amy, you have given us so much to think about. This has been so thought-provoking. To wrap up this conversation, I would love to invite you to complete four sentences. I am inspired by. So there's this thing that I've noticed called vicarious resilience. I am very inspired by that. When I look around, I see other people doing so well and so much and putting like such purposeful effort into holding themselves yeah, whether it is just managing or whether it's thriving, who knows, who cares, that that idea of me being able to look around and see other people who are actually able and are doing, and it's not because they've got a magic life where nothing is wrong, it's just because they are. When life feels hard? Get cosy so you can make a good plan and then, like, come out fortified. An underrated skill is? Acting with heart, even though I think a lot of people think they do it all the time. They don't. They act with judgy hearts. There's a book called The Anatomy of Peace, which I highly recommend for everybody to read. It's by the Arbinger Institute, and it takes people through a a beautiful little story that helps get an understanding of how you might act with your heart without being better than or worse than than somebody else um, or without putting them in boxes. And I'm looking forward to. God, in work, I'm looking forward to more of these sorts of conversations because I've been working in this field for a really long time and nobody cared about emotions at all. So the pandemic really brought all of this to the fore. The teacher shortages brought it to the fore. The EBAs brought it to the fore. The greater socio-political context has really brought how we are emotionally at work to the fore. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. And personally, I'm looking forward to going and hanging out with my new baby niece. Because <laughs> babies, I love them. Amy, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for bringing awareness to this vitally important topic. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast today. That's very kind of you to say thank you. Thank you for inviting me here along today, Meg. It has been a delight. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Amy and since our conversation, I have been really thinking about the concept Amy shared around vicarious resilience and how new research is exploring how repeated exposure to other people's strengths, perseverance and determination can help us to grow. We might develop new perspectives, grow in hope, resourcefulness and self-awareness. So how can we develop this vicarious resilience? From the few articles that I've looked at, it tends to happen when we reflect on the strengths of the people that we help, take care of ourselves, and when we have access to effective support. And that makes really good sense because If we're not taking care of ourselves and we don't have access to the support, it can be hard to experience that resilience. It can be quite depleting. And that's when we're going into the territory of that vicarious trauma because we're in that reactive response. We don't have that space to care for ourselves and to process. So I think this is an emerging topic that is so 
interesting. Think of the people that you have worked with, that you have helped, and how they have helped you to be more resilient in your life. It is such a powerful concept to explore. To learn more about Amy and the wonderful work she's doing in the world, visit her website, www.thrivingprinciples.com. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. A heads up, I am now taking bookings for 2024. So if you have a particular date in mind, make sure you get in contact to secure that date via the booking form on my website. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 101. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing. And I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.